Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1 at 9 if necessary. Scripture teaches that all our sins were paid for on the cross. Nevertheless, even though we're saved and we have eternal salvation that can never be lost, we still sin. Sin disrupts our fellowship with the Lord. It uh, halts our forward momentum in the Christian life. So we need to have a uh, recovery mechanism, and that's 1 John 1, nine gives us the opportunity to, to, to recover from our sin and restore that forward momentum while we grow. So we'll have a few moments of, of a silent prayer so you can... Uh, Take advantage of that opportunity, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we can come together today to study your word, to be refreshed by the eternal truths here, to gain an eternal perspective, so that as we understand your plans, your purposes, what our Lord Jesus Christ is accomplishing even now during this dispensation, that we can see how we are part of that plan and how what is taking place at a cosmic level impacts each of us in our everyday lives, the things we do, the things we say, the places we go, the, our priorities. And Father, we pray that as we study these things and we see how we fit into this cosmic scheme, that you would help us to uh, respond to what we learn, to the teaching of the Holy Spirit, that we may recognize that, that these things drive us to different priorities from those around us, and that it means that your word and Understanding your will is more important than anything else we do in life. We just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our study today on the ascension and session of Christ. This is a topic that is not talked about a whole lot, as I pointed out last time. In fact, if you're, if you come to the scripture from certain theological Framework such as covenant theology or some of the other systems, even though you recognize the current session of Christ, because you don't have that dispensational frame of reference that gives you a broader and more biblical understanding of Scripture, then it is uh, you're less likely to develop these things out because you're just not coming with enough enough um, enough background. It's interesting. This last week I was reading through a some book catalog that I got and found a book that had just been published in England by a scholar there, about a 400-page book on the Ascension. I just sort of found it online and thumbed through the table of contents and a few other things, and and I'm not sure where he's coming from, but he seems to be, uh, at least this author seemed to be approaching it from a fairly biblical framework. I don't know if he's dispensational or not, but he recognized that on the flyleaf cover of the book was that this is a subject that is rarely taught and rarely developed, rarely studied. So it's a, it's a needed area because, as we'll see, it becomes a framework for our background or basis for a lot of the exhortations, challenges to the Christian life that we find especially in the book of Hebrews. Now, let's just have a little review to see if we're caught up on where we're going. So, we're talking about the ascension, the church age, and our spiritual life. We talked last time that the Jews expected a one-coming Messiah. That is, they didn't distinguish between a first coming and a second coming. They knew that that there were messianic passages in the Old Testament that talked about a suffering Messiah, but they focused or concentrated on the passages that talked about the glorious Messiah, his rule and reign over the nation. And they failed to make the proper distinction there, and so instead of looking for the cross before the crown, they were looking for the crown, and they just sort of ignored the suffering aspect or the suffering dimension of the uh, Messiah's coming. So John the Baptist, Jesus, and then all the disciples proclaimed the same message. We saw this, and this is crucial to understanding this whole concept 
of, uh, of the ascension because something is happening with the ascension session related to the kingdom. And this idea of the kingdom is one that we really won't develop too much until probably next time. We may get there this morning, we may not, depends on uh, how things go. But that's the, that's the underlying issue here is this, this kingdom message that was proclaimed, that was promised in the Old Testament. It relates to the Davidic covenant that God had promised Israel that he would give them, them a, or he promised David that one of his descendants would sit on an eternal throne, that he promised that there would always be a descendant of his that would rule Israel. So that established an eternal dynasty. And Israel looked forward to this kingdom. So when John the Baptist came and he had a message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the people knew what he was talking about, but they're thinking in terms of this glorious kingdom and a Messiah who's going to come and defeat Rome and bring Israel back to their former military glories under David and then Solomon. And Jesus had the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent the disciples out to the house of uh, Israel and the house of Judah with the same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But something happened. The people didn't respond. Now, many people did respond, but the majority did not respond. The leadership did not respond. They rejected him. And so this led to a postponement of the kingdom. And that's crucial to understand today is that there's a postponement of the kingdom. We're not living in the kingdom. Now, there's some folks you run into, and you may have some of your family, friends, those around you, and they're charismatic or Pentecostal and these folks have a certain view that we are in the kingdom in some form today and they'll go to passages such as Joel 2 they'll talk, go try to fit an interpretation of Acts 2 when Peter's talking to uh, the, the um, uh, disciples and to the crowd there that these are the things that Joel talked about and that somehow the presence of the Holy Spirit today is sort of a foretaste of this future kingdom so of course that legitimizes tongues for the church age. And this is a view that somehow we're already in a limited form of the kingdom. That has a lot of other problems with it. Uh, what we see here is that the kingdom is really postponed. You can't have a kingdom without a king. You can't have a king unless he's sitting on a throne. Now what throne are we talking about related to the kingdom of Israel? We're talking about the throne of David. So Jesus isn't sitting on the throne of David right now. He's at the right hand of God the Father. So that's the doctrine called the session which we'll develop uh, this morning. So what we see here is that this idea of the kingdom is foundational to understanding what happened at the ascension and what happens in the current session of Christ at the right hand of God the Father. So when Jesus' message is rejected, when he is rejected as king, the kingdom is not inaugurated at all in any way, shape, or form. It's just postponed to the future. Now, since the people of the kingdom, that is the Jews, rejected their king, the king had to expand his base going into what would seem to us... Uh, alternate plan B. Plan A was to present the kingdom to the Jews and if the Jews had accepted him as Messiah, you know, here we get into what if history, but what if the Jews had accepted him as Messiah? Well, the kingdom would have come. Somehow he still would have had to die. There would have been a crucifixion. Somehow there was, that would have worked out. But see, God knew in eternity past that was never going to happen. I believe that uh, in the omniscience of God, God knows all the, all the knowable, and under any given set of circumstances, that just wasn't going to happen. People are negative, and they were going to reject him. And so the king had to expand his base. And so we go to what appears to us to be a contingency plan, plan B, but this was the plan all along, and that is to go to a new people. that don't They don't replace Israel, but there is a parenthesis, there's sort of a pause. God hits the pause button for Israel's history 
and he's inserting a new plan and program for a new people called the church. And in the church, the body of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or slave, male or female. In other words, in the Old Testament dispensation, if you were a male, you had privileges in worshiping God you didn't have if you were a woman. If you were a, a free person, you had privileges in the tabernacle or the temple in terms of worshiping God that you did not have if you were a slave. If you were a Gentile, you couldn't go places that, that Jews could go. So these were factors related to their ritual performance. And in the body of Christ, all these are removed. Now, they'll become factors again in the future uh, under the Jews, but in the church, they're not factors. So the postponement of the kingdom then entails a, what's going to happen in this interim period? What's going to be dropped into history here? And that's what we're talking about. That's the church age. So you see, the very fact that we have a church age is directly related to this postponement of the kingdom and what's happening in heaven right now and what is God doing in history. So all I'm saying is, don't forget that this has something to do with this kingdom idea. The sixth point I made was that this new people are going to have a new basis for the spiritual life. There's a direct connection between the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said the Holy Spirit can't come unless I leave in John sixteen seven. So we have to explore and develop that that connection. And that's where sort of where we ended last time. So we're looking at the puzzle. Last time we looked at the first piece. Why the ascension? What was its purpose? And that was in terms of post, the postponement of the kingdom and a new a new thing in history. The second piece of the puzzle we're looking at now answers the question, well, what happened at the Ascension? We got into that a little bit last time. And what we're pointing at, what I'm pointing out is that with the Ascension, Christ is elevated over the angels. Christ is elevated over the angels. And so we're going to see two basic things that, that come out of of this study. The first is that I want to emphasize today, the first is that the ascension completes the strategic victory of Christ on the cross. That's what's happening with the with the angels. Completes the strategic victory of the cross. And the second thing that I want to look at this morning is how the strategic victory of Christ sets up this new phase or this new dispensation. So when we look at this we're going to answer the question, what happened at the ascension in terms of the angelic conflict. So last time we looked at this uh, map of the of Israel at the time, and we saw that it's up in this area that you had the temple, and then the Kidron Valley runs here, and then just to the east of the temple is the Mount of Olives. And when Jesus left on that last day, he left from Israel, crossed the Kidron Valley, went to the Mount of Olives, gave his parting uh, instructions to the disciples and then left from the Mount of Olives. And that doesn't just happen by chance as we saw at the end. Now here's a, another photo of the Mount of Olives as it exists today. And remember, this is where Jesus Christ is going to return when he comes back at the second coming. Not at the rapture, which is only in the air, but at the second coming, Jesus is going to return to the Mount of Olives, which is going to split. And there's going to be a massive earthquake. And then he's going to go into Jerusalem. Here's another shot of the Mount of Olives. See, it's not a mountain like... If you've been up to Colorado and you've looked at some of those 13,000, 14,000-foot peaks, we're not talking about a mountain in that sense. This is more like a Fredericksburg, Hill Country, Texas mountain. Acts chapter 1 gives us the description of what took place He at that time. He's meeting with his disciples, and when he had spoken these things, that is the last warning that the Holy Spirit's about to come, stay here in Jerusalem. While they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men, these are angels who appear as men, stood by them in white apparel. 
Now the words I focused on just a little bit last time to give us a sense of what the, the original is trying to convey here in limited human language. The word that he's taken up is a passive voice verb, which means that the subject receives the action. Jesus was the subject, and the action is this action being taken up. So in some sense, he's, he's receiving the action of being taken up, and the action seems to be performed by the cloud because the active voice verb is hupalambano, that it's the cloud that receives him. And basically all that this is saying the cloud represents God. Often he, there's a cloud associated with the presence of God in the Old Testament. And this is a picture of God's accepting him and receiving him into heaven. Verse 11, as they looked at the two angels and they're, sta- they're, they're standing there with their mouths open because they've never seen anybody fly off into space before. The angel said, Men of Galilee, why are you standing there with your mouths wide open? Why are you gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And I concluded last time with about seven points on the comparison between his departure, his ascension, and his return at the second coming, that it's going to be in the same way. It's going to be a physical bodily return to the same place, the same geography. It's not spiritual. It's not the Holy Spirit coming a few days later at the day of Pentecost. This isn't to be confused, to be interpreted like some are today in what's called preterism. Preterism is an old view of prophecy that kind of died out in most of the 20th century. It's making a big comeback that uh, all these things were really fulfilled in the past before uh, before the church age that, that Jesus returned in AD 70 in judgment that's what clouds mean it's just a false interpretation but you may run into it it, it can't be that he's going to return in the same visible physical way that he left he, um, so Acts 1 uh, Jesus was taken up from you into heaven he's going to come back the same way and I went back and I pointed out that this follows the same pattern that we saw in the Old Testament when the Shekinah, which means dwelling, that the presence of God in the Old Testament left the temple. Left the temple, and it's pictured in Ezekiel 9.3 as going out from the Holy of Holies to the courtyard. And again, in Ezekiel 10.4, you have the Shekinah moving out into the courtyard, and then it moves from the courtyard across the Kidron Valley to the mountain in uh, Ezekiel 11.23, which is on the east side of the city. That's the Mount of Olives and then ascends to heaven. So you see this same pattern. Now when Jesus comes back at the second coming, he's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split open and he's going to lead his army of the saints, which is you and me. And where's he going to go? He's going to go into the east gate on the east side of the city. He's He's going back in the same way he came out. Now, what's interesting is that Muslims are aware of this prophecy today, and so they, they in order to prevent the Messiah, it just seems that people just, just have such a narrow view of God. In order to keep this from happening, what they've done is they boarded up the east gate, so there's no, so nobody can come in that way, and then, and then assuming that that the Messiah is going to respect the holy ground of a cemetery, they put a cemetery outside the east gate. So this is supposed to keep the, you know, Jesus the Messiah from ever fulfilling Jewish prophecies. I'm just, just silliness. But what's going to happen is he will return and he will enter in through the east gate in triumph and come into Jerusalem. Now let's look at what took place. What took place at the time of the ascension itself? How does the Bible picture? the ascension, the departure of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first place we'll look is in Hebrews chapter 4, which is a great passage. Hebrews chapter 4, I'm going to touch on just two or three descriptive verses here. Hebrews 4.14, we're told, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Notice, 
the mandate at the end of the verse to hold fast or hold firm to our confession, that is to what we believe, no matter how tough life may get, no matter what the distractions or assaults may be, the, the command to hold firm and to stay firm and stay the course is based on what? That we have a high priest who passed through the heavens. And the point I'm making is don't, don't get into a trap of thinking, well, the ascension's just a nice little doctrine and it's something nice to know. It's, it's, it's historically true. It's, it's academically correct because that's what the scripture says. No, it's, it's that, but there's a purpose to it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that because this happened, you stay the course. There is practical benefit to this. This is part of the application is that when things get tough and you feel overwhelmed by, by the details of life and the pressures of life, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is don't give up. Hang in there because we have a faith that's based on a historical reality that our high priest passed through the heavens. And the wor- verb here for passing through is de-erkomai. De-erkomai, which literally means to come through, go through, to pass through, to travel from one place to another and going through the intermediate area. It is a physical, geographical concept. Jesus isn't just sort of uh, taking off into another dimension, dematerializing from planet Earth as he as he goes into the upper atmosphere and then reappearing in some alternate dimension known as the throne of God. This is this is a term that that coming from the inspiration of Scripture ought to challenge our understanding of the structure of the cosmos, of the universe, because he is pictured as passing through the heavens. And the way the Bible depicts the heavens, of course, I'm sure you're familiar with this, is it talks about three heavens. The first heaven is really the, the upper atmosphere of the earth, the immediate atmosphere around the earth. The second heavens is the, the universe, the stellar heavens, the location of the sun and the moon, the stars, and all of the galaxies. And then the third heavens is the location of God. And we know from Scripture, from our study of Scripture, that despite what evolutionary science says, the universe is not infinite. It is finite. And you come to a point where the universe ends, and that's what's pictured in these verses, is that Jesus goes just blasts through the atmosphere heavens and the stellar heavens to a location, a physical, spatial location that is where the throne of God exists. And that's where he is today. Uh, Hebrews 4.15 goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in all things as we are, yet without sin. So, And then we're exhorted in the next verse to come boldly before the throne of grace. So we have a challenge to hold fast. We have a recognition that we have a high priest who's been tested in all areas as we are, and we're commanded to go boldly before the throne of grace. All of this is predicated on what? On the ascension. So this is a very practical doctrine to understand. Now another verse that gives us an idea of how the Scripture depicts the uh, ascension is in First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three, verses. 22, where we're told that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now there's two things that I want to point out in this verse. The first is that the verb here has gone is the Greek word peruomai. Peruomai. And that word indicates the idea of going someplace as if you're going on a journey. You're traveling from point A to point B. You're going to go from Brenham to Austin. You're going to go from Brenham to Houston. You're, going, you're, you're, you're traveling on a journey. And that's how this is depicted in Scripture. Jesus has not only gone through the heavens... But he is pictures going on this journey. Now it was a pretty quick journey, but it, nevertheless he's going. He's traveling through space, and he's gone into heaven, 
and currently he's seated at the right hand of God. Now, the, that, that gives us that, that picture. Now, the second thing that we see in this verse is what's ha- what happens consequent to this ascension. What is part of the result of this? He's not only gone to heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but angels and authorities and powers. These are terms related to all the angelic beings, angels and demons. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. And the Greek verb there, I don't know if I have it on the screen, I don't, is hupotasso, which is a military term for subordination of authority. What is pictured here is that Jesus Christ in his humanity is seated at the right hand of God and in his humanity is in authority over all the angels. Now, why am I stressing that about his humanity? Well, think about it. Jesus Christ in his deity is is eternal and he possesses all the attributes of God, including his sovereignty. Therefore, Jesus in his deity is certainly over all the angels and principalities and powers. He always has been and always will be. But also, Jesus in his deity doesn't sit in one location. He is omnipresent. So what we have to understand is in our passage here in 1 Peter 3.22, what we're looking at here is Jesus in his humanity in hypostatic union with an emphasis on the human side that in his humanity he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, the, the presence of the humanity of Christ and the body of Christ, his resurrection body, at the right hand of God the Father, has been a historical argument used against the, uh, what is now the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. If any of you have come out of a Roman Catholic background, you go, you go every week they celebrate the Mass. And in the Mass, the, the priest utters uh, the words, Hocus meus corpus, which is in Latin, this is my body. And it, back in the mi- Middle Ages, people, nobody spoke Latin other than the priests. They didn't know what it meant, so they thought it sounded like hocus pocus. So that's where we get our, that's where we get our term hocus pocus. And, and, of course, he would wave his hand over the bread and it would turn into the body of Christ. So this was magic. And that's why a lot of people get the idea that what... Uh, Christianity is is nothing more than some kind of, you know, some kind of magic. And if you're believing in the miracles and the scripture, that that's magic. But that's that's not what we're talking about. And one of the arguments used against transubstantiation was that every week in every Catholic church, the 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 wafer is turned into the body of Christ. Well, this violates the whole doctrine of the finite location of the human body of Christ at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father during the church age, seated being a passive position. He's not doing anything. He's not popping up all over the place in a lot of different churches every time they celebrate the Mass. He's in one place or the other, but he's the human, the humanity, the human resurrection body of Christ is not omnipresent. It is local. His deity, in his deity, he's omnipresent. But in his humanity, he's in only one place. He's at the right hand of God the Father, and he is seated, as we'll see in just a minute. Now, what this tells us is that at the helm of the universe today is a human being, not some intermediate creature between God and man, not some angel uh, not some creature from some other planet. You're not going to find a Klingon or, you know, something like that, or a Wookiee, or we got Star Star Wars coming out again this week. Uh, you you don't find any other creature there. You find at the right hand of God, seated at the control center of the universe, a human being, and that's the emphasis here. It's not on Christ in His deity here. It's on Christ in His humanity, and in His humanity. He was created, what writer of Hebrews says, and the psalmist says, lower than the angels, but now we're higher than the angels. And now, what does that tell you? That, that, that verse I just quoted is from Hebrews, and what we're seeing here is a lot of references to the book of Hebrews. Okay, let's go to one other passage. Let's skip over to Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 gives us another little picture insight into what happened at the, at the ascension. 
which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this tells us that where Jesus is today is seated at the right hand of God. He's not seated on the throne of David. Now, the reason I keep saying that is because in amillennial theology, which is covenant theology, or postmillennial theology, or what is now developed out of Dallas Seminary in the last 20 years or so, something called progressive dispensationalism, which isn't progressive or dispensational, you have Jesus seated on the throne of David in heaven. But this violates a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of the Scripture. He's seated at the right hand of the Father waiting for the kingdom. That's what we're going to see this week and next week. It's just foundational to understand this. We're in, he's in a wait position, a wait mode. He's on, the kingdom is on pause, and something phenomenal is taking place that he's working through the church age. So Ephesians 1.20, he's seated at the right hand in heavenly places. Where? Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. This includes angels and demons. He has been elevated above all creatures. Again, this has to be understood in terms of his humanity because in his deity he always was in a superior position to all of the creatures. So in his humanity now, he is elevated above all of the angels, all creatures, and this puts him in a position of authority and control over the universe. So he's been seated at the right hand of the Father, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he, that is God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, the Lord Jesus Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Because where we've moved to now is from the ascension to the session, and that this picture of the session involves subordination to the Lord Jesus Christ of all things, and also giving him something called the church. And he's the head, and we're the body. And he is building this body. Now, I don't know. I never had the privilege of having my own little babies, but I know some of y'all have had babies. Now, when babies are born, if you look at their total body mass, which is probably nothing more than this, and you look at the, the, the percentage of that body mass that's the head and the percentage that's the body, the head is quite large compared to the rest of the body. But by the time that little physical body grows to maturity, those dimensions change, don't they? So that by the time, what happens over time is the body has to grow to fit the head. And that's part of what's going on right now is that at the beginning you just had the head, Christ, and this little bitty body of just a few believers on the day of Pentecost few thousand but just a few and now through time the body has grown to fit the head and the body is learning all about the head and how to relate to the head and that's part of what is taking place in this in this church age so this introduces us to the doctrine of the session of Christ and that comes from the Latin word uh, sessionum which means to sit and that's what session means. You know, I've heard that word for a long time, the, the ascension and session of Christ. And everybody talked about the ascension and session of Christ, and I thought that was one word. Sort of like some of you still don't know that damn Yankee's really two words. I didn't find that out till, <laughs> I didn't find that out until I was probably in college. But, but, you know, ascension and session is really three words, ascension and session. So we've talked about the ascension and now we're talking about the session. But nobody ever uses that word session anymore unless, of course, maybe you're in court. And in court they would talk about the judge being in session because he's what? He is seated on the bench. So that's where this word comes from. It's a very old, very accepted theological term. But since we live in a society that's more and more biblically illiterate and theologically illiterate and ignorant... We don't know these terms, so you, you can't use them with, with, uh, and expect people to know what you're talking about. So what we're talking about is the fact that Jesus is seated. 
He is not in a position of action. When you're seated, you're not in a position of action. There, something's transpiring around you, but it's different from what we see is pictured later, or in, which is yet in the future for our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now we're going to go one more passage in Ephesians. I want you to see how I'm tying a lot of different verses together. In a, another couple of minutes, I'm going to just we're just going to speed read through a whole bunch of passages to see the thrust of this because I'm, part of what I want to do is impress you with how frequent the scriptures refer or allude to the session of Christ. Now Ephesians 4.9 reiterates this idea of authority. Uh, it's a parenthetical statement. I'm going to fit it in the context in just a second, but all, all Paul says is, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth he who descended is himself, also he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That's the phrase I want to just reiterate here, consistent with what we just saw in Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 in the First Peter passage, is that Jesus has ascended above all the heavens for a purpose, that he can fill all things, and that again is related to his humanity. Now, what's going on here? Go back to Genesis 1, 26-20. One reason I love teaching this is because this whole doctrine pulls together so many loose ends out there. And unfortunately, most people just aren't taught a whole lot about Scripture that they can't pull all the loose ends together because it demands a lot of scriptural knowledge. In fact, this is one reason why so many people today get confused when they read the book of Hebrews. And what I've come to understand and started really understanding and appreciating when I first started this study about, I think this is about the fourth or fifth time I've taught it. I started into this about two years ago. Is that this is the, the whole foundation to the book of Hebrews. Over and over again in the book of Hebrews, there are allusions to the ascension and session of Jesus Christ and its current impact on the believer because that's the, the whole doctrine of the pre, present priesthood of Christ is built on the ascension and session. And only Hebrews talks about the priesthood of Christ. Paul never mentions it. I mean, this is critical stuff. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, y'all, we need to get past this elementary teaching about Christ and press on to the stuff that really matters. Most Christians are sitting here saying, I still don't understand salvation. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, get out of diapers. Let's get, let, let's get out of elementary school and start getting to the stuff that really matters here. And that's what Hebrews is all about and why everybody runs away from it. Because we, it just demands a tremendous amount of knowledge. So what's going on here that Jesus is going to fill all things? Just a real quick summary here. Number one, man's created to do what? To subdue the earth back in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. He's created in the image and likeness of God as a reflection of God so that he can, in divine authority, rule and reign over the creation. But what happens? What happens is that Adam sins. So the image is, is, at that point becomes marred or flawed. It's not lost. We're still in the image of God. How do we know that? We know that because Genesis 9 God tells Noah that if anybody sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall also be shed, because he has, what? Killed someone who's in the image of God. So we're still in the image of God, even though it's flawed by the sin nature. Then, we can't accomplish the task. What's the task? It's to subdue all things. To rule and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. We can't do that. So what happens is, God himself becomes a man in sinless humanity and he lives a sinless life, passes the test that Adam fails, goes to the cross, and now in his humanity is elevated above all the creatures and fills all things. In the process of the, of the um, uh, crucifixion, Jesus is doing what? In Colossians 1.23, he reconciles all things. So what Jesus is doing beyond the simple work of salvation is he is fulfilling all of the divine purpose for mankind stated in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 and his elevation in authority over all the angels to, is to fill all things so that when he finally comes back 
at the second coming and establishes the kingdom, we are elevated with him as members of the church so that we, we have that same position of authority. We're elevated above the angels, and, and according to 1 Corinthians, we're going to rule over the angels and judge over the angels. See how all this fits together? I mean, it is just the most phenomenal thing in the world, and somebody's going to get this tape and listen to it 15 times just to figure out everything I just said in the last five minutes, because that's the nature of how far we've fallen today in terms of our understanding of how Scripture fits together. Okay, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 7 to 11 is a crucial ascension passage. And again, it shows that the ascension isn't just some nice little historical doctrine, that the, ascent, that the ascension and session isn't just, a, just sort of an allusion to the kingdom, but that these two integral doctrines relate to what's going on today and are intensely practical in terms of your understanding certain dynamics. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each one of us means each believer. That means you, 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 every single one of you. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. What he's talking about here is spiritual gifts. Every single believer is given at least one spiritual gift. It may be a gift of service, it may be a gift of giving, it may be evangelism, it may be pastor-teacher, it may be a gift of uh, administration, who knows what it may be. Everybody's got a different gift, and that gift will become manifested in your spiritual life as you grow spiritually. As you mature spiritually, it's going to start to leak out. Now, you may never know what it is exactly. I think the gift of service can manifest itself in all kinds of different ways. But everybody has a spiritual gift, and it's for the benefit of the whole body. We're to serve one another, love one another, encourage one another, teach one another, admonish one another, pray for one another. All these one another passages that we find in the Scripture, and they flow out of an understanding of these spiritual gifts. But spiritual gifts aren't something that's just something for you to serve for yourself. I mean, that's the typical self-absorbed, arrogant attitude we have in a lot of churches today. People run around, i got to know what my spiritual gift is. Now, let's just focus on growing to spiritual maturity and serving the Lord in whatever capacity becomes available, and our spiritual gifts will manifest themselves. We'll begin to discover there are certain areas where we're more effective, other areas where we're less effective, and that's where we'll, we'll end up concentrating. So Paul says, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... And when he says, therefore, it says, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about a quote that he's getting ready to give from Psalm 68. Therefore, it says, that is the scripture says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Wait a minute. Somebody out there is really sharp. They had an extra cup of coffee this morning, and that, um, that extra shot of caffeine, they said, wait a minute, how can a psalm give us information about the church age? Because there's no information in the Old Testament about the church age. See, what Paul is doing is he is taking a passage out of the psalms, and he is using it as an analogy to point out that this, just as this event happened in Psalm 68, the same kind of thing, this just was foreshadowing, and it's, it pictures the kind of thing that happened at the ascension. It's not a prophecy per se, in the sense that, uh, and, and there's different ways in which Old Testament passages are said to be fulfilled in the New Testament, and this is one that I would classify as this is similar to that. Similar to that. It's not a... Um, uh, for example, you have uh, Old Testament prophecies that say that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And guess what? Jesus, the, uh, the, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's a direct prophecy. There are other passages where the writer comes along and says, this is said in the Old Testament is similar to this. It is a, a foreshadowing. It is a picture. It's not a precise uh, a prophecy in the sense of foretelling a specific historical event. And so uh, Paul quotes from Psalm 68. And what we're seeing here, and this is what, what really gets challenging, is that the writers of the New Testament go back to certain concepts in the Old Testament 
in order to flesh out the significance of the session of Christ and the ascension. Okay, so he's going back to this event in the Old Testament, which we'll have to we'll have to study, and we will in a, in a second. We'll skip nine and ten. Go down to verse 11. Ephesians 4.11 And he gave some, these are those gifts he's talking about, some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, of course. Apostles and prophets are, were temporary gifts that died out at the end of the uh, first century. And these gifts are given for the equipping of the saints to do the work of service for the building up or the maturity of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of doctrine. And not a lot of unity of doctrine going on today. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so what we're seeing here is that these gifts are given for a purpose, and that is to build maturity into the church. But what's the foundation for understanding this? So if we're going to understand, what I'm saying is if we're going to understand the dynamics of what's supposed to happen in a local church in terms of maturity... The Apostle Paul and others are grounding this in the current session, and we need to pay attention to what, what's going on here. Okay. What we've looked at so far is why the ascension, and what was its purpose. That relates to the postponement of the kingdom. So whatever's going on today, bottom line, whatever's going on today has to do with this postponement of the kingdom. Second thing that we looked at is the actual event itself. What happened in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus takes off into the clouds and the passages from Hebrews and 1 Peter Ephesians 1 20 21 tell us he goes through the spatial heavens to the throne of God a physical location where his humanity is now located at the right hand of God from where he is ruling the universe. He is in control of the universe. Now, we're going to go to one more aspect, and that is the Old Testament background. So we need to look at Psalm 68 and Daniel 7. We may not get to Daniel 7 today, but we'll at least get to Psalm 68. That's the quote that we run into here in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, so turn with me back to Psalm 68. While you're going there, I want to point something out. A minute ago I mentioned that there are a lot of verses in the New Testament that relate to the ascension and session of Christ. And I want to give you some now. I'm going to read these, but you can just jot down the references and go back, return and study them later. One we looked at already, Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So we have the relation of his current priesthood to his ascension and present session. Then Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance, that is the... Uh, out of the flashing forth or radiance of His glory, God the Father's glory, and the exact representation of His nature. He is a stamp of His nature. These two uh, descriptions relate to His person. He upholds all things by the word of His power. That's His work. When He had made purification of sins, that's His work on the cross, He what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Hebrews 1.3, which in the first four verses of Hebrews gives us the basic themes of the whole book of Hebrews. And so we see right there a reference to his uh, session, which is foundational to the rest of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 1.13, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now that's a quote from Psalm 110. Verse 1. Then Hebrews 1.5 says, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. See, this is related to what he says uh, at the time of this, the resurrection ascension, and it's a quote from Psalm 2.7 based on, uh, and, and also 2 Samuel 7.14. 
What we're seeing here is there's a connection between a number of different psalms that are crucial for understanding what's going on today. Hebrews 7.17 again alludes to Psalm 110, this time 110.4. For it's attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So his current priesthood, which is related to his session, is tied into this Melchizedekian priesthood thing, which everybody scratches their head over. Okay, isn't this fun? We just get to all kinds of, of uh, things that we pull together from all over the Scripture. Acts 5.31 He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So it's related to granting repentance to Israel. Isn't that interesting? Grant repentance to Israel. So that indicates that something's going on now is also has an important dynamic in bringing Israel back eventually to recognition of Jesus as Messiah. Implication, there's a future for Israel. Again, there's an allusion here to Psalm 110, uh, verse 1, his exaltation to the right hand. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. That's based on Psalm 110.1. This introduces the fact that the sitting, the session, is related to waiting for something. What's he waiting for? What's going on here? Well, you know, to understand that, we're going to have to get to Daniel 7. But we may not get there this morning. Acts 2, verse 30 and 34. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, that's the Davidic covenant, an allusion to Psalm 132.11. So, this ties the Davidic covenant in. Acts 2.34, But it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord, that is, David says in writing Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Acts 3.20.21, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. Wow. What that's saying is that Jesus has to go there until something happens. There's a waiting time going on right now. And so this is picking up imagery from Daniel 7 as well as from Isaiah. And then we come to our last delusion, John 6.62, where Jesus said, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And here he connects ascension to the title Son of Man. And that title Son of Man is only used in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. So you see how the writers of Scripture are taking Daniel 7, Psalm 68, Psalm 110.1 and Psalm 110.4, and Psalm 2, and weaving them all together. So what we have is, number one, an allusion to four messianic psalms in all these doctrines. Psalm 2, Psalm 89, which is the Davidic covenant. Psalm 132, which is the Davidic covenant. Psalm 110, which talks about the Melchizedekian priesthood and being seated at the right hand of the Father. And Daniel's plus Daniel 7. All that you, you, you have to understand all this to understand the ascension. It's not that difficult, but it gets us into some things in the Old Testament that not everybody gets into very much. I don't know why it is, but somewhere along the line, uh, dispensationalists got into this trap of saying that, that we're just going to study the epistles because the epistles are all about the church age and we're going to focus on the Pauline epistles and they spend hours and hours and hours. In fact, I knew one pastor... In, in the Dallas area who had uh, who, who spent almost 50 years in the pulpit and he never got out of the Pauline epistles in 50 years but you know what Paul, Paul's writings are based on the Old Testament you can't understand these things if you don't understand the Old Testament so who's going to teach the Old Testament pastors aren't teaching the Old Testament and relating this to what's going on in the epistles second point for understanding this is that the terms Son of Man, which relate to the humanity of Christ, but so much more. The Son of Man, Son of God, which relates to His deity, 
defines his deity. Son of David, which relates to his position as the Davidic king in relation to the Davidic covenant. And the terms king of kings and lord of lords are all tied together in this whole doctrine. Now you're saying, how's he going to cover this in another two weeks? (laughs) Third, the Davidic covenant is seen as the foundation for understanding all these things. So we're going to have to understand something about the Davidic covenant, which is where we'll get next next week. The Davidic covenant. That God made this contract with David that his descendants would sit on an eternal throne, which implies that there's got to be more than a human there, right? It's going to be a human throne, I mean an eternal throne, and human beings are finite. What do we have to have sitting on that eternal throne? See, these are hints that the Messiah was going to be more than just a man. Just couldn't be another human being like Solomon or like... Jeroboam or, or any of other, any of David's other son or grandson. Okay, and the fourth thing that we tie in here is that the Melchizedek, is the Melchizedekian priesthood and its fulfillment in Christ. And see, so much of this is what's going on in Hebrews. And I thought about this after we talked about me doing this. Is I'm teaching Hebrews on Thursday night at West Houston Bible Church, and I have to knew I was going to go back and have to go through all this material again to get my head back into this because this is this is a lot of stuff but it's great to see the how complex the plan of God is but it still can easily be understood Jesus is doing something at the right hand of the Father related to your spiritual life and that means that we need to hang in there and go forward I mean it can be reduced to that that simple a level but when we go through all these passages, you see how profound the whole thing is. So we go back at our passage in Ephesians 4 8, just briefly. This quote, when he ascended on high, or this statement, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men, is a paraphrase of a verse out of Psalm chapter 68. Psalm chapter 68, which is where I had you turn. And it comes from Psalm 68 18. So look at Psalm 68, verse 16, just to pick up a little context. This is a Davidic psalm. That tells us it's written by David, and therefore it's written about 1,000 B.C., and it's written before the Babylonian captivity. It's written before Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. It's written when not long after God gave the covenant, or or actually it's written about the same time, probably just before the time that God gave the covenant to David. We'll see why. i say that in a second. Verse 16 reads, Why do you look with envy, O mountains, with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? What's that talking about? It's personifying nature, all these mountains. All you other hills around here, why are you all looking with jealousy at that one hill, at that one mountain? Because that's the mountain that God chose. Now, what mountain are we talking about? We're talking about the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, where God, the, tent, the mountain God chose for His abode. We are talking about the place that currently is under the under the control of the of the Palestinians, and where you have the Dome of the Rock and the Al Aqsa Mosque and all the other stuff going on. That is the mountain that we're talking about. Why do you look with envy, O mountains? With many peaks at the mountain which God has desired for his abode, surely, surely the Lord will dwell there forever. Now that's certainly a hint that something's got to happen because God says he's going to put his dwelling there forever. Verse 17, the chariots of gods are myriads, thousands among thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. So this is a picture of God uh, as, the, as the commanding general over the angelic forces. Verse 18. So, so what does that tell us? What's this imagery we're talking about all of a sudden in verse 17? The chariots of God are, are myriads, thousands upon thousands. This is military imagery here. We're talking about looking at this in terms of an army. So the background here is military. Verse 18. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. 
Now, what's happening here? Now, if you notice something, we just ran out of tape. If you notice something, there's a few changes. In Hebrews, Paul says, He ascended on high, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 68, David is addressing Yahweh's ascension on the Temple Mount. In his ascent of the Temple Mount, gifts were given, brought to the Temple, whereas what we see in the ascension of Christ, Christ is distributing gifts. So these are some of the little differences between the two texts. That's why I'm saying it's not a fulfillment. It's not a prophecy. It's not a fulfillment. It is simply imagery that is being borrowed by Paul. And then let's just skip down to verse 24. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. So what we're talking about here is the events that occurred in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is, they're, they're bringing the ark from the uh, threshing floor, I mean from uh, the, the, where it had been with Ob- Obed-Edom, stored there in his barn, and they're bringing it up on the temple mount to the place that had been the, the threshing floor to uh, Aruna, and this is where the temple is going to be located. So it is a picture of a victorious ascent to the mountaintop that God has chosen. And if you stop a minute and just, just think, what's been going on in Israel's history? Is back with, back with Joshua, they crossed the river, they took out Jericho and Ai, then they went south down to Hebron, and they took out all the other areas, and then the last, one of the last strongholds to finally be conquered, the last strongholds of the Canaanites to be conquered was what? The city of Jerusalem that was a stronghold of the Jebusites, this Canaanite population. And so finally, in the early part of David's reign, they defeat the Jebusites and they take control of Jerusalem, which is where the mountain of God is. And finally, they are bringing God to his resting place on the Temple Mount. And this is a sign and celebration of their military victory over God's enemies. So what's the imagery here is of military victory in defeat of God's, God's enemies. It is a psalm of praise for the victorious conquest of God's in, enemies and, and a praise of God and what he is now going to do among the Jews. What happens? In, in, what, what, why does Paul pick this up? Because he's using this imagery to show that just as God took the high ground, because see, the Temple mounts the high ground. Whenever you go to Jerusalem, wherever you are, you go up to Jerusalem because it's elevation. And you go down to every place else. Jerusalem's the high ground. What do you always want to take in in the military, in any battle situation? You want to take the high ground. If you lose the high ground, you lose your, your strategic advantage. So that's the picture. And the picture that Paul picks up is that when... When, Paul, when, when Jesus ascends to heaven over everything, he's now taken the high ground. This is the same kind of thing, he's saying, as what happens in Psalm 68, that just as you have this victorious ascent of God, and, and it symbolizes the final conquest of the enemies, so you have a final conquest of Jesus over his enemies uh, at the cross, and this is signified by his ascent to the right hand of God. And in the context, I don't have time to go over it, but what happens in Psalm 6 as David dances before the Lord and they bring the, uh, the, the ark into uh, Jerusalem, what does David do in celebration? David, who is a type of Christ, a picture of Christ, David distributes gifts to the people. He gives them food and he gives them wine and he gives them meat. He's distributing gifts to the people. And so Paul is taking that whole imagery, the whole picture of what happened there, and he is saying this is the same kind of thing, only greater. Just as this was such a fantastic thing that happened in relationship to Israel as a picture of God's positional victory over the enemies of Israel, the ascension of Christ to heaven is a picture of his positional victory over all of our enemies, and he distributes gifts so that this becomes the basis for our Christian life. Because this is the strategic victory 
This is what we mean. We talk about strategic victory. It's the overall victory that allows or provides a framework for all the other tactical victories, the little battles you and I fight every day in the Christian life are predicated upon the fact that Jesus has accomplished the strategic victory on the cross and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And because he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, because he's been elevated over all the angels, because we are unified and united with him, that gives us the uh, ability and the potential to have victory over all the little tactical battles in our life. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says... Hold fast to your confession. Don't give up. Don't fail. Don't, don't wimp out in the, in the midst of the battle because this is what's happened. So this gives us a framework for understanding what happened at the ascension. Now, some of the really good stuff's about to come. We've only gotten through Psalm 68. Now we have to connect this to the Davidic covenant. What's happening in Psalm 2? What's happening with the Melchizedekian priesthood? and see how all that applies to the dynamics of the church age. So we'll do that next week. Okay? If you're ready. I'm going to have Mike come up. He's going to lead us in closing prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your matchless word seems the deeper we go, the richer it gets. We're so thankful that we can have encouragement, confidence, security, all the things that people so desperately want and yet they don't find because they're ignoring you and your word. We thank you that we can be emboldened by what you have revealed to us Indeed, Christ's ascension has much more than just uh, understanding that Christ went to heaven. It has great impact upon our lives, our daily lives. And we pray that you will help us to drink this in in full measure so that we will win these tactical victories. And we'll be able to put it all in perspective. And we thank you for the grace system of perception. Even that you have given us so that we can understand these great and wonderful things about yourself. We pray that you will help us to remember these things, to apply them to our life. And we pray this all in the name that is above all names, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.